Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Critical Science Podcast. I'm Dr. Lyle Bragoon, and today I want to talk about uh, something um, that kind of bothers me and kind of bothers a lot of other scientists that I know, and it's this uh, practice called uh, Science by Press Release. That's right, Science by Press Release. So essentially what's going on here is... Um, a lot of science is done by academics, right? And that's, and that's great. You know, they, they're doing very interesting science. They, get, they need to get their work out there. And one of the things that's been happening is that scientists need to um, do a lot more engagement than they used to, especially in academia. So there's, there's been this movement for uh, scientists to do more outreach uh, to help the public better understand what it is that they're doing. And, you know, overall, this should be a net benefit, right? Because most scientists, especially here in the United States, are publicly funded. So they're taking taxpayer money and then they're going to perform research with this. And the hope is that by investing in science and technology, ultimately, this will help us in many, many, many different ways uh, down the road. So it's a net public good, for the most part, to be funding this kind of stuff. And it's also good for the American people to know what in the world it is that they're funding, right? So it overall should be a, a net public good that scientists are going out there and, and spreading the message about what it is that they're doing. This should be a great, great thing, and we should be encouraging it, right? Right, except here's the catch. There's a lot of perverse incentives that go along with this. So right now, in, this, in the current state of science, what you need to be aware of is there's a lot of perverse incentives for especially academic scientists because in order for them to be promoted, they need to bring more money into the university. And so in order to make sure that they're actually you know, able to get more money, they need to publish more. So they need to make sure that their work has impact, that it's being published. And so as, as more of their work gets published, that creates uh, this incentive in toxicology, at least, to have results that show that chemicals do bad things. All right. So let's let's think about this. So if you're an academic toxicologist and you want to publish a paper and you want to say that at the doses you tested, this chemical did absolutely nothing. No journal, the thinking, this is the way the thinking goes. This isn't necessarily true. But the thinking is that no journal would ever want to publish that because that's what we call a negative result. And journals have this incentive of wanting people to actually read their papers. And the more papers that get read, presumably the more papers those get cited. As a journal is cited more, that is how a journal editor says, hey, my journal is important because the papers in my journal get cited more often. And so there's this faulty logic that goes along with that amongst various academics that says, oh, a a journal that has more papers being cited than not is probably a higher quality journal. And so therefore, if I publish in that journal, then, then my paper is more likely to be cited too. So we, we have all these weird perverse incentives and none of these things are necessarily true, right? I publish papers all the time in journals, in decent journals. They may or may not get cited more than in any other journal I publish in, right? So you know, when I make a determination of, as to where I'm going to publish, because I don't, I don't have as much of this, of these perverse incentives driving what I do, you know, what I, what I do is I try to target journals where, uh, I know that they're going to, uh, 
find decent reviewers. That's usually the first thing top of my mind is I don't want a bunch of um, reviewers who are going to say, you know, oh, you shouldn't publish this paper because I purely disagree with what they're saying. No, I, reviewers like that, that, that's a low quality review. I want editors who say, we're going to ignore reviewers like that. And we're instead, we're going to go for reviewers who are very critical of the paper, but fairly critical, right? So points where, yeah, I could have said that better. Yeah, that, that's a fair review. Or points where, you know, you fail to consider these other things in your analysis. Oh, that's a fair review too. Those are the kinds of reviews I want. And those are the kinds of journals that I tend to go for. So I, I don't, I don't care as much about this quote unquote impact factor, which is what we're talking about here. The impact factor reflects how many of those papers are getting cited. And that's important to journal editors, but it's not important to me, but it is important to other academic, to, to academic scientists. So the academic scientist is disincentivized to publish papers that say, eh, chemicals don't really do anything. They're incentivized to publish papers that say, chemicals do some really gnarly stuff and you should be really scared. All right. So we already have this kind of bias going on anyway. And the more salacious the headline can be, the better off for the academic because more eyeballs are going to get to that paper. So, Right now, it was about, um, uh, today is uh, March 15th, 2023. It's about uh, two o'clock in the afternoon when I'm recording this. And uh, about 23 hours ago, the University of Rochester Medical Center published a uh, uh, press release saying that common dry cleaning chemical linked to Parkinson's disease. And this press release was picked up almost immediately by a few different outlets and it's slowly starting to get picked up by more outlets. It's, it's so rare that I get out in front of something like this. And what, I, what, I, what I'm hoping is that I'll be able to inoculate you a little bit from this science by press release garbage because this happens all the flipping time. And it, it made my life extremely miserable when I was at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency working on hydraulic fracturing. When somebody put out this, this awful, simply scientifically awful press release and then I had to spend the next several hours of my day responding to all kinds of people saying, no, that's not actually what their study showed. No, they're blowing it out of proportion. This isn't this, isn't this big a deal. You know, it, and so th this has real world ramifications. And a lot of the folks on the academic side don't necessarily see the negative ramifications. They only see the positive ramifications such as, hey, lots of press uh, picked up our story. Hey, we're making headlines. Hey, I'm getting interviewed by people, right? That's what they see. They don't see the downstream things that are also happening. So the point that's really, really, really getting pulled out of this particular uh, press release is this, um, this number in the paper. So, okay, let me back up. So this press release is associated with a paper. And this paper was per published in the Journal of Parkinson's Disease. And in that paper, actually, it's right here. They say it here. There it is. I didn't see it before in the press release. I guess I had to look up a little bit higher. So the last sentence of the very first paragraph of the press release, here it is. TCE, that's trichloroethylene, causes cancer, is linked to miscarriages and congenital heart disease, and here's the kicker, and is associated with a 
500% increased risk of Parkinson's disease. Okay, full stop, full stop right now. Here's the deal, folks. In statistics, we have this rule, and it goes like this. If you have a huge finding, like a 500% increase in something, then you seriously need to have amazing evidence to back that up, okay? In this press release, they're saying a 500% increased risk of Parkinson's disease. That got picked up by the outlets that, I'm, that I was reading where I first saw this. 500% increased risk of Parkinson's disease. That was what stuck in my head. And that's when I said, oh, you've got to be kidding me. So th- when you see things like this, what you need to then do is you need to go find that paper. Okay. And so they say it's a hypothesis paper in the journal Parkinson's disease. You open up that particular paper and you will see, you know, it's uh, in the introduction of the paper. And they say, right there it is, the evidence-leaking TCE, that's trichloroethylene, to PD, which is Parkinson's disease, to date is based on a handful of case studies. Okay, so that's the first clue that, hmm, this probably isn't going to be real because there aren't that many studies that are going this way. But it gets better because then the next phrase in the sentence is a small, keyword, small, epidemiological study linking exposure to a 500% increased risk of Parkinson's disease, and they cite a paper number 11. So you click on that and you say, okay, paper number 11, what are you? Oh, okay, this is Goldman et al. This is in uh, the Annals of Neurology. Okay, so then you go to that paper, okay? Because what I need to know is how many people are we talking about, all right? How many people do they actually have in this study? And here you go. It takes a little digging, but eventually you're going to come down to table three. And you're going to say, oh, table three, solvent exposure frequencies and adjusted pairwise odd ratios in PD discordant twins. Again, PD is is, uh, Parkinson's disease. And it says N equals 99 pairs. Okay, that's the kicker right there. 99 pairs. What they're talking about is twin studies. Okay. So they have twins. Some of these are what we call identical twins or monozygotic twins. Some of these are fraternal twins or dizygotic twins. Uh, The zygotic part means um, the number of eggs that were fertilized. So a monozygotic twin is a situation where one egg was fertilized but two babies come out because the egg uh, splits early on and forms two different uh, individuals. Dizygotic means that two eggs were simultaneously uh, released and fertilized. All right. So that's the difference. Okay. For TCE. All right. We're looking at 99 pairs. All right. 99 pairs. So the problem is they're combining monozygotic and dizygotic twins. For this study to really, really, really be interesting, you really want to lean on those monozygotic twins because that takes genetics out as a factor, right? Major genetics. Now, there could still be epigenetic changes, which are changes in uh, how genes are controlled. But 
this at least takes um, what we would consider genes, right? It takes that out of the equation so that now the only thing that can really influence whether or not these people got Parkinson's disease is the environment. But that's not what they do. They combine the monozygotic and the dizygotic together. Because if you go up a little higher, let's see here. And I, there it is. They only had 36 monozygotic twins. They had 60 dizygotic twins. And somehow they have three unknown. I'm guessing they didn't know whether they're monozygotic or dizygotic. But, um, you know, there's simple ways of figuring that out. But anyway... Uh, they have 36 monozygotic and 60 dizygotic. So they can't really piece out the genetic component to this because they're combining the monozygotic and dizygotic twins. Okay. Proportions of pairs with either twin exposed is only 12% for TCE. That's table two. So let's think about this. So of the 99 twins that they have, 12% were exposed. So that means, you know, either with either twin exposed. So that means 11%, or sorry, 11, probably 11 pairs of twins. All right. This is not a lot of people that are being exposed here. Okay. And Parkinson's disease is not the most prevalent disease in the world, right? So when you look at table three, it says the number of cases and controls that don't have um, Parkinson's disease is 87. Now, now think about that for a second. You know, in, in terms of twins, 87 of these twins were not exposed and do not have Parkinson's disease. The number that were exposed is maybe 10 or 11. So what we have here is we have this, this big unbalance or imbalance between the number of cases and the number of controls. So a case would be the number of people who have Parkinson's disease. The controls would be the people who don't have Parkinson's disease. What we want in an ideal world, especially when we are dealing with a case control situation where the cases are a rare disease, what we really, really need is to have a balance between the number of cases and the number of controls. We need those to be as equal as possible because otherwise what happens is we're going to increase the false positive rate. And that's basically what we see here. And again, when we have small numbers, we're also increasing the false positive rate. So what this reminds me of is this reminds me of uh, there was an office, you know, an episode of The Office, uh, the U.S. version of The Office, where Michael Scott had this brilliant idea. He was going to be Willy Wonka for the day, and he was going to put um, golden tickets into boxes of paper. And each golden ticket was, uh, I think, uh, 10% off uh, for the rest of the year or for an entire year on all your paper orders. And so when he slipped these golden tickets into the boxes, he put them all into boxes that were pretty well near each other so that one client of theirs, one of their customers got all of the golden tickets, which came out to about a 50% discount on their paper 
uh, for the rest of the year. And it just happened to be their biggest client too, right? Because that's how this works. So what happened was Michael Scott was enriching the uh, order for that particular client by not randomizing where he was putting his tickets, right? So he was giving one client an increased likelihood of getting this massive discount. That's kind of what we have here too. So when this is an imbalanced situation, when we don't have that many cases, um, you know, and, and the controls and everything else, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're running the risk of artificially increasing the number of exposed within the case situation. And that's, that's what we're seeing here because we don't, we have this rare event and the way case control studies works is that you've got these cases that you've already identified. Okay. You've already identified these cases. And then what they do is they randomly go out and they're looking for individuals who don't have this disease. But when you're dealing with an exposure that is also a rare event, right? So it's not just that the disease, Parkinson's disease is a rare event. The exposure to this chemical is also a rare event. And so what's happening is now you've enriched for cases where you've got individuals who are exposed and who have this disease and that's enriched that way because that's the way you designed it. But now you're going to go out and you're going to take a large sample of people who are never exposed to this chemical, right? So what you've done is you stack the deck such that you're going to drive towards a false positive. That's what's happening here. So we're talking about a very tiny study. We're talking about a study in you know where they didn't take advantage of the fact that they had these monozygotic twins which really you know begs the question why didn't they look at the monozygotic twins why why didn't they do that and so to me the best guess i have because i don't have access to their data is probably it didn't come out statistically significant So therefore, they didn't use that information, okay? That's what it looks like to me. Also, when when you look at their data and you're looking at it from an unpaired situation, it's no longer statistically significant, not that I buy into the statistical significance anyway, but what you're seeing is this is an effect that they only see in the twins, when they increase the number of people that they're looking at just by a little bit, right? It's not that much. The number of cases, 126 number of controls is 119. So now we're closer to an actual um, balanced load, right? All of a sudden this effect goes away. Riddle me that bad. So when they look at this, at something that is more balanced the effect goes away. They're also not looking at the monozygote specifically to take away that genetic component, probably because it didn't come out statistically significant. You add that all together. And what does that tell you? Probably what they saw this 500% increase is actually a false positive. Point number two, 
This is a case control study. The way they're analyzing this data is that they're looking for associations. This is not a causal study. That is very important. If they wanted this to be a causal study, they would have to do an experiment. So an experiment is where you're going to have a group of individuals, you're going to randomly assign them to either a treatment group or a non-treatment group, and these individuals are similar enough to the population, you have a large sample of them, right, that you can make inferences about the population, and then you're going to say, oh, the people that we exposed to this chemical uh, developed Parkinson's disease, and these that we didn't, didn't uh, develop Parkinson's disease, so therefore we know that the chemical would be causal for Parkinson's disease. That's not what this is. This is an observational study. Now, I'm going to harp on this again in another episode, uh, so I'm not going to get too deep in it today. But you may remember from science class, the way we typically do science is we start with an observation. And it's funny because we're watching uh, kids' cartoons right now that explain this. And, um, you know, I enjoy it because they're doing a pretty good job of explaining this. And it's good. And I hope that my kids remember this in the long term, uh, which means we'll probably have to repeat, you know, these lessons over and over and over again over time. But the, the key here is science starts with an observation. Somebody observes something and it looks interesting. Then we need to tease out, is this relationship causal or not? So what we're seeing here, this is an observation, right? This is, this is an observation that somebody made. Hmm, look at this. Isn't that interesting? Now, somebody, you know, like me or somebody else, I don't, I don't necessarily do experiments anymore. I don't have a lab. But a lab toxicologist could then go in to the lab and perform the experiment to see if they can replicate this observation in the lab and if they can, then that will give us a little bit more evidence of causality. Now, when that lab scientist publishes their results, other lab scientists need to come along and replicate it. And after it's been replicated a few times, and we have better, uh, uh, a better understanding of the causality, and we have additional information, now we're going to start saying, okay, did we effectively test this hypothesis? And when we say test the hypothesis, what we mean is we're trying to falsify it. In other words, we want to do experiments now that are going to show that this hypothesis is bulletproof. And the way that we're going to do it is by trying to disprove our hypotheses. And that is where science also goes wrong a lot. A lot of times because grant money, future grant money is riding on the results Scientists don't like to be quote unquote wrong about their hypotheses. They're trying to prove them correct. And that is not how we do science. What we need to be doing is we need to be saying, here's the current hypothesis. How do I disprove this hypothesis? How do I run this hypothesis through the ringer to say that this is not how nature works? That's what we need to be doing. And once we do that, and once you know a bunch of us scientists are like pretty comfortable that, you know, we've tested this thing every which way and it still holds true. Guess what? Then it's probably true. 
Unfortunately, in toxicology, we don't do the replication part because for some reason, nobody wants to fund replication. They want to be funding all this cool, really, you know, neat stuff. But replication is kind of, really? And so nobody funds it, which means it doesn't get done, which means it's very rare for us to actually run a hypothesis through the ringer really effectively. And that, my friends, is why we're in the mess we are today in terms of toxicological science is also happening in uh, psychology as well, where we have this replication crisis. Part of it is because nobody's trying to replicate. The other part of it is that we just aren't writing the papers well. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox there. All that to say, what we're looking at here today, this study is not an experiment. It is an observation. It is the first step in the process of science. And this is where I start to have problems with reporters. Reporters need to remember, wait a second, this is an observation. So what we're seeing here may or may not be true. And that top line number, that 500% is probably not true. And so I've walked you through the process to see, hmm, This is really weak evidence. Oh my gosh, do they actually have the evidence to back it up? No, they don't. This is a really, really, really tiny study. And when you start digging into the paper a little bit more, you find, yeah, this really doesn't really hold water, does it? And that, that is the point that I'm trying to make. We need to do a better job about preparing all all of our citizens with being more scientifically literate. It shouldn't just be the scientists who are sitting here and saying, that ain't right, right? We need more people to be questioning these studies and to be saying, okay, so if it's only 99 pairs of people, you know, yeah, really? That, that's, that's not a lot of people. I mean, you're trying to say that something is bad based off just a observation in fewer than 200 people. Think of it this way. We don't approve drugs based on studies with 200 people. We need a lot more people before we're going to approve a drug. All right. So, and the reason why is because we have so much human variability. So to me, this evidence, it's an observation. It's not really that interesting. And the evidence for it is extremely weak and extremely tenuous. And there are more questions then there are answers in this particular paper. So here's the bottom line, right? And I know I'm running long. Here's the bottom line. You can't trust science by press release. You just can't. The press releases are not peer-reviewed, and they are written to try to get eyeballs. Reporters are not necessarily doing a great job of finding people to say, Eh, yeah, no, that, that's just not right. Okay. So we need our reporters to be doing a better job. We need, we need the public to have a little bit more science awareness and knowledge and literacy is the word that we like to use today. We need more science literacy. And that's one of the things that we're trying to accomplish here. I want you to be asking these types of questions. I want you to be questioning what you're reading in the news. I want you to be questioning a lot of things. It's okay to question. Whoever said it's not okay to question experts, you should, dar- you should question experts. I get questioned all the time. When I go into a courtroom, I'm questioned. 
when I'm talking to other scientists, I'm questioned, right? There's no reason why you shouldn't be questioning experts. It's okay to question expert. What's not okay is throwing misinformation around as if you're an expert. That's not okay. But there's nothing wrong with questioning people. Ask people questions. What's wrong with that? They don't want to answer the question. That's cool. They don't need to answer the question. Okay. But if you're, if you're trying to ask an honest question and you're trying to learn, most scientists aren't going to have a problem with that because they love to talk about themselves and their work. Just fact of life. They love their work. They love to talk about it. They love to have questions from people. What they don't like is being attacked. So don't attack people. Okay. But ask them questions. Scientists love questions. Scientists ask questions all the time. Anyway, I'm getting off of that soapbox too. Man, so many soapboxes today. What's up? So what do I want you to remember? If you remember nothing else out of my entire rant today, what is it that I want you to remember? Number one, if you see a press release about science, and I don't care where it comes from, be extremely skeptical, number one. Number two, if you see a, a news report or a paper or a press release reporting some number that looks humongous in terms of an effect size, like 500% increase in Parkinson's disease, you definitely owe it to yourself and probably your friends at the next dinner party you're at if you go to dinner parties. The Lord knows I don't. But it, you owe it to yourself and to your friends to look at that number and scrutinize it. And if it's not an experiment, if it's an observational study, then you just make that clear. Hey, you know, do you read this? It's an observational study. It's not an actual experiment. There's no causality here. And, you know, start picking at it, start finding little faults with it, you know? And if you, if you can, you know, go find your local uh, toxicologist, if you have one, and chat them up about some of these things, um, you know, see if they're willing to pull things apart. And I, I guarantee you, most toxicologists uh, that I know, um, depending upon what it is that they do, may or may not want to pull apart other people's work. If they're, if they're, a, sci if they're a consultant like I am, they're more than happy to pull other people's work apart because that's what we do for a living. If they're an academic, uh, they, they might not. They, they might not want to go. Uh, run their their colleagues uh, work through the mud, and that's and that's fine. You know that's that's their prerogative. Anyway, I've talked long enough. If you're still listening to me at this point, man, you deserve like a gold star or something. That's that's just amazing. I don't usually drone on for this long. Anyway, those are the things I want you to remember. If the number looks too good to be true, it probably is. Number one, number two, and to me, probably a little bit more important. If it's an observational study, that is the beginning of the scientific journey for that story, for that hypothesis. That is the beginning. That is not the end. That is the beginning. All right. With that, thanks for listening to the Critical Science Podcast. I hope, uh, I hope it was entertaining. I hope you got something out of it. My name is Dr. Lyle Burgoon. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your coworkers, tell your boss. If you don't have a boss, I don't know. Tell somebody. Let people know that, that uh, I'm out here trying to spread the good word. And um, if you find it entertaining, you know, feel free to let me know. 
Thanks, everyone. Have a great day, and I'll talk at you again soon.